turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Now, before we get into the text, let me just say this. Uh, Paula and I, immediately after church, are heading toward West Virginia. Would appreciate your prayers for us while we're on the road. We will be back next Monday. So, Dan Sexton is going to be uh, sharing the, the ministry of the Word with you next Sunday. Um, let me just point this out. Um, I think when I went in the summer, I assigned him the topic of homosexuality, and now when I'm out of town, he has the topic of lust and divorce. So uh, that, that's my kind gesture to Dan. Whenever I go out of town, give him the easy passages, right? <laughs> this morning, we're going to talk about a subject that isn't easy either, and that's the subject of anger. As we come to this passage of Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount, we find the Lord Jesus Christ addressing the issue of anger. And let me give a disclaimer, okay? In a previous church, I preached on the subject of anger and reconciliation. And after the service, I had a very upset young woman come up to me and say, you talked to my sister-in-law, didn't you? <laughs> the disclaimer is this, I have talked to no one about anything pertaining to anger, okay? This isn't directed towards someone or something, this is simply the Word of God. If you feel tweaked in your conscience, don't blame me. Blame the Holy Spirit. Uh, keep that in mind. I share that disclaimer because it seems like whenever I preach on anger and reconciliation, somebody thinks that I have special knowledge of a situation that's gone on in their life, and I'm using the pulpit to talk to them. Let me assure you, if I'm aware of a need to go and talk to somebody, I do it privately, not publicly, through the pulpit. So with that disclaimer, let's move into this text. As Jesus begins to address the issue of anger, and we're going to see him address five other issues in addition to this, it's springing off of a part of the passage where the Lord Jesus Christ talks about the righteousness of the Pharisees. In verses 17 through 20, the Lord Jesus Christ was talking about the fact that he came to fulfill the law, and then toward the close of that discussion about Jesus coming to fulfill the law, he challenges the people who are listening to him, his disciples. Your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, as we looked at that text together, we saw that the Pharisees' righteousness was an external type of righteousness, not something that there was, was, was transformation that was taking place in their spirits and in their lives, but a change that they tried to make from the outside in rather than God changing them from the inside out. As we come to this part of the passage and several other parts of the passage following, there are six ways that Jesus addresses the righteousness of the Pharisees, and with each one of those subject matters, he introduces it with the words of, you have heard it said, or something to that effect. Jesus wanted people to understand that righteousness goes well beyond the external exercise of some sin, that sin actually begins internally, not externally. 
The Pharisees had made this to be something that was quite different. Only an extreme action was considered sin, certainly not an internal attitude. And basically what they were doing was taking an iceberg view of sin. They thought of behaviors as the only sin, right at the top of the iceberg. But what they didn't address were the underlying beliefs, the underlying attitudes that lead us to those actions. And what Jesus wants to impress upon us is righteousness isn't just that external action. Righteousness is internal as well, and it's something that comes from beliefs that are transformed, not just actions. I would submit to you that until our attitudes are changed, transformed, there can't be an external change. And it's backwards to go outside in rather than inside out. Now look at the text with me at verse 21. And as we come to this part of the passage, we find that Jesus is addressing the fact that anger is both external and internal. And what he begins to address with his disciples is the teaching from the Pharisees that only the action of murder is punishable anger. That any other kind of manifestation of anger or any kind of attitude of anger really isn't that bad. Look at what he says in verse 21. You have heard it said, or you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, we are all familiar with the association between anger and murder. As a matter of fact, the very first book of the Bible deals with that issue, doesn't it? With the very first recorded sin outside of the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden. And in Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 5, we find the Word of God share with us the sin of Cain and the sin that he committed against his brother Abel, but ultimately that he committed against God. Look at the text that says this, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, this is speaking of God. Cain offered an offering of vegetables rather than an animal sacrifice. And God did not regard his offering. So it goes on to say, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Then the text goes on to give this warning. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they... We're in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now here we see an association between anger, resentment, hatred, and ultimately murder. The Word of God is warning us in this text that murder is wrong, and this is before the Ten Commandments by many, 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 many years. The idea is this. God places an innate sense of what is right and what is wrong in us, and He has revealed to us through that innate sense that taking the life of another person as an expression of anger is wrong. And this is what the Pharisees were primarily focusing on, just the idea that the action of murder is wrong, and I think we would all agree with that, right? But here's the problem, it doesn't go far enough. Murder is wrong, and it's expressed in the Word of God. We find in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit murder. And then we find the 
outcome of a person committing murder in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 21 is this, whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. So here, the Word of God is laying out quite clearly that it's wrong for us to commit murder. But here's the issue. Sin is committed well before the action of murder, and this is what the Pharisees couldn't see. When I begin to purpose in my heart to murder somebody, I'm guilty of sin. When I begin to hate and resent another person and it's fueled by anger, I have sinned. What we need to understand is this, that when I nurse sinful attitudes, I open my heart to the path that ultimately can lead to murder. And that's what I have to be careful of. The Pharisees were only teaching the external aspect of sin. The most heinous of acts, murder, and not the path that leads to murder with all of the sins that we commit along the way to that extreme action. You see, a problem with the Pharisees was this. They categorized sin. As we saw last week, The Pharisees had what they called heavy sins and light sins. A heavy sin would have been murder. A light sin to them would have been that unresolved anger and bitterness that leads you toward that act of murder. So this is why they had to deal with murder, not in the way that the Pharisees did, but in the way that Jesus teaches. And that is, the sin begins well before the action. Now, something else that we see as we look in this text is this. Allowing anger to fester and grow is wrong before God. Just as murder is wrong before God, so allowing anger to fester is wrong before God. Look at what Jesus goes on to tell us in the 22nd verse. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, only the murderer is liable to judgment. But what Jesus is telling us is this, if I am angry with my brother, I am liable for judgment. What is he communicating? Surely, if we look at this in the original language, he can't mean what this translation is saying, right? Guess what? It does. No loopholes. God is telling us to be very careful of our anger. And here, the type of anger that he's talking about is an ongoing anger, uh, a, a brewing type of anger, one that hangs on and one that colors our thinking, one that drives us toward sin and causes us to form attitudes and actions that aren't in keeping with God. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, let's take a moment and drill down on this concept of anger and what the Scripture has to say about it. Listen, anger is taught in Scripture as something that can be appropriate or inappropriate. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, and look at what the Scripture says. Be angry and do not sin. There is an anger that we can have that doesn't lead us to sin. All of us encounter situations where there are frustrations, where things don't work out, and our immediate emotional response is anger. All of us look at situations where 
Injustices are done where things are, are hurtful to us or to other people, and our response is anger. There is an appropriate response to anger, and we need to recognize that. When it says, be angry and do not sin, it is telling us that we can be angry and still not fall into sin. We'll talk about how we pull that off in just a moment. But then it goes on to say this, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, what I see as I examine Scripture, when it comes to anger, there are two things that can make anger inappropriate. First of all, direction the direction of my anger. If my anger is directed toward injustice, toward blasphemy against God, toward abuse of the innocent, then my anger has the proper direction. If I'm angry with somebody because things didn't go my way, and because they were a roadblock to things going my way, then that anger is all about me, and it is self-oriented. Now, a lot of people, when they talk about anger, immediately go to the Lord's cleansing of the temple. And they say, well, see, Jesus was angry, so it's okay for me to be angry. Let's put that in perspective. When Jesus was angry about what was going on in the temple, he was angry at the abuse that the money changers were heaping upon people who were coming to make sacrifice and being ripped off for trying to purchase sacrifices in order to worship God. He was angry about God's house being turned into a den of thieves. In other words, the blasphemy, the contempt that was directed toward this holy place by these very unholy people. So Jesus responded with anger. But here's what we see about Jesus. When he responded with that anger, he didn't hold on to it. He made his point and he moved on. For us, anger takes the wrong direction when I make anger all about me. When I look at me and make me the center of the issue that I'm angry about, I've lost perspective. When I look and I say, you didn't do what I wanted you to. You said something unkind about me. Me, me, me. Whenever I am the center of my anger, I need to step back and reevaluate. That's the direction of anger. If I'm looking at injustices, and yes, that injustice can pertain to you, but make awfully sure it's not a perceived injustice, it's a real injustice. It's okay to be angry, but don't let that anger be a place of operations, a starting point for moving into unscriptural anger, where you hold on to it. And that brings us to the duration of anger. Notice that 26th verse says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, what does that mean? Letting the sun go down on your anger carries with it the idea of holding on to your anger for more than a day. In other words... Somebody does something that brings about that righteous indignation. Somebody does something that that brings about that frustration or that anger. It becomes sin when I hold on to it, and that's the lens through which I view another person or a group of people because I don't like what they're doing. If I hold on to it, 
and nurse it and allow it to consume my thinking, then I have just stepped over into anger that is sin. Look at the warning that we're given and give no opportunity to the devil. Satan is the cheerleader on the sidelines as I move toward anger and bitterness and resentment. And the whole time he's saying, oh, you deserve to be angry. And as a matter of fact, I don't think you're angry enough. This was a serious offense. You can't let him get away with that. Listen, that is not of God. That is not of the Holy Spirit. That is of our flesh being a base of operations for Satan to come along and find a foothold in our lives and turn us into people that allow anger to drive us more and more to the direction of sin. So we need to avoid it. Later in that fourth chapter of Ephesians, the Word of God calls us to this, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Now, all of these are manifestations of anger. And what the Word of God is telling us is we need to put them away from us. This passage of Scripture is talking about putting off the old man and putting on the new. And part of putting off the old man, that sinful part of us, and putting on the new is getting rid of the things that draw us into bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. God wants us to live differently, and that's what Jesus is pointing out here. It's not just the action. It's all of these attitudes that lead us to these sinful actions. So then in the 22nd verse, after he says, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, what he's sharing with us is this. God holds us accountable for the inappropriate anger that we express toward other people. But then it becomes difficult for us because it says, whoever says to his brother, Raka, now that's what it says in other translations. In the ESV it says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now the council here is the word that is often translated Sanhedrin, but I don't think it was talking about a human Sanhedrin, a council where things are decided, a religious court where things are decided. And here's why. The Sanhedrin themselves were calling Jesus' names and plotting to kill Him. So I don't think they could judge somebody for doing the same. I think the council that Jesus is speaking of is a spiritual council, one administered by God. And what he's saying is, look, if you come to the place to where you begin to verbally abuse your brother and you call them names, then you have moved into the sin zone. You are committing sin against God. It's that internal, external struggle that we're looking at. John said this, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, did you see that? The internal feeling of hatred fueled by anger 
God considers to be murder. And then it goes on to say, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is serious. The word that is translated insults in our ESV is translated raka in some of your other versions. And it's a word that basically means empty-headed, not head, idiot. So here's the idea. Someone makes me mad and I lash out at them verbally and I call them a name. I have now just transgressed. I've moved into sin. And the part that's convicting to me is this applies to driving. God wants us to not allow anger to so control us that we lash out with a hurtful name. You know, we live in a time that is divided politically, and it's often something that we will become engaged in so much that we call people created in the image of God who hold opposing political views names. And that is not motivated by the Spirit of God. That's motivated by that part of us that wants to divide into camps and fight against other people. One of the greatest fears that many have over Thanksgiving is that around the Thanksgiving table things will blow up as people talk about political issues. God wants us to be careful to hold our anger in check and not to call people these harmful names because we are accountable to God. Well, it's tough enough if it stops there. But look at what else it goes on to say. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoa. If I call somebody a fool, then I'm liable to the hell of fire. Now, the word fool is a Greek word that we get our word moron from. Same root. And so what God is telling us in this text is, again, don't allow your anger to move you to such a degree that you verbally lash out at somebody else, calling them these kinds of names. It's inappropriate for the Christian, for the disciple of Jesus Christ. We are not to engage in them. And I don't want to minimize the last part of this passage because when it says, you are guilty of hell's fire, Jesus is saying that this is a sin just like any other sin. It is equivalent to the sin of murder. Just as John said, no murderer sees eternal life, what this passage of Scripture is telling us is a person who is consumed by their anger is on the same path as people who are on their path to hell. Strong words. The word that Jesus uses for the fire of hell is a Greek word, Gehenna. There was a garbage dump called the, the Valley of Hinnom. It was a place in the Old Testament where people would go and sacrifice their children to the god Moloch. Moloch was a brass god that had a wide open mouth, and there was a fire that burned in Moloch. 
And people would take their infants and sacrifice to Moloch and drop them inside the gaping mouth of this god where fire was there and and would consume the infant. That's the horrible picture of Gehenna, a place that was a dump in Jesus' day and had smoldering fires and stench that were going up constantly. So what is Jesus saying, that if I lose my temper, I'm going to hell? No. What Jesus is saying is this. The righteousness of the Pharisees tells you that it's just these external actions that make you righteous, but you have to do even better than that. (laughs) You have to get the inside right too. Inside or outside, if you mess up, you go to hell if you're counting on your own righteousness. Here's the beauty of the truth that we find in God's Word. I do not have a relationship with God on the basis of my own righteousness because if that were the case, I would fail miserably, as would you. Because of Jesus, the one who is sharing this truth, there is a way out of the sin that we all fall into. I don't want to see a show of hands, but how many of us lost our temper just this past week? How many of us lost our temper on the way to church? I know that was where Satan worked on my family. Yell at the kids and then, hello everyone, it's good to be in God's house this morning. All of us sin. All of us commit sin that ultimately lands us in hell apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who has given us forgiveness and right standing with God, not on the basis of my righteousness, but on the basis of His. Jesus said this in the Gospel of John chapter 3, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Now, condemned is referring to an eternity in hell, right? Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is what we need to recognize. Sin, whether it's internal or outside, ultimately lands us in hell. For all of the people who say, I'm going to heaven because I've never killed anyone, wrong. Have you ever called someone a name out of anger? You've just lost all of your righteousness because it's the righteousness that's greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. So we need to remember we need Jesus. We need the change that He brings from the inside out. And as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we need to surrender those sins of anger to Him when we recognize them. Something else that we see in this text, as it progresses, we see that in addition to dealing with our anger, we need to seek reconciliation with our brothers. Listen, anger divides us. It causes us to go into camps and groups, and generally what happens with our anger is this. We are angry with somebody, but we don't keep it to ourselves. I'm going to go to all my friends who I know will support me and say, can you believe what this person over here just did? That was awful, wasn't it? I'm mad at him, and I want you to be mad at him with me, right? And maybe the person 
that we're mad at is mad at us. So they go to all their friends and they say, hey, you know what they did? They, they, they did this, and I'm mad at them, and I want you to be mad with me too. And what happens? There is a division, a split, a break in relationship. Jesus is talking to His disciples, and what He's saying to His disciples is, number one, don't allow anger to control you, but number two, pursue reconciliation with your brother. And this part of the passage begins with verse 23. And I want you to look at what verse 23 says, that the altar comes after we have sought reconciliation. Look at what it says. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and first, um, before the altar and go first to be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, we've all heard this passage of Scripture, or most of us have. What is it saying? I want you to think about the ramifications of what's going on here, because sometimes with a familiar text like this, we're not thinking about exactly what Jesus is saying, because we don't have a perspective of where it is and what's going on. Jesus is speaking to His disciples in Galilee, the hill country of Galilee, some 60 miles from the altar in Jerusalem. So when a person would go to worship God at the temple and bring a sacrifice to this huge brazen altar, that would mean that either they're trekking the 60 miles on foot or if they have means on a donkey, and they may even be dragging a sacrifice along with them as they go, or they'll have to purchase a sacrifice in Jerusalem once they get there. So they make the trek down to the altar, and they're ready to go up and offer their sacrifice, and twing, right in their brain, there's that memory I haven't fixed my relationship with a brother. You know what Jesus says to do? This is extreme. Leave the sacrifice at the altar. Make the 60-mile trek back to reconcile. And then once you've reconciled, make the 60-mile trek back to offer the sacrifice. And then when you're done with the sacrifice, make the 60-mile trek back. Two or three day journey each way. Mountainous roads, heat, dust, dryness. In other words, do what it takes to seek reconciliation. That's the idea. I think too often as Christians we see reconciliation as inconsequential, it really doesn't matter. Jesus is saying, go to great lengths to make reconciliation. We are so busy in justifying why we're angry with somebody, we don't seek reconciliation. But that's not even what's going on here. What's going on here is someone saying, I recognize that I have caused someone to be angry with me, and I haven't resolved it, so I need to go and talk to that person and get this sorted out. This is how God wants us to handle reconciliation. Now, I recognize that there are occasions where you will seek reconciliation with somebody and there is none to be had. 
I'm thankful for a passage that we find in the book of Romans where the Apostle Paul says this, Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. And then verse 18, If it is possible, and this is the big part, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is what God asks of us. Where we can, and even at great effort, pursue reconciliation. Why? Because reconciliation is the living out of the Beatitudes that we looked at earlier. Go back to the first part of this fifth chapter and look at the Beatitudes. Jesus opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, or the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It it takes great humility to go and make reconciliation, doesn't it? He goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Sometimes that breach in relationship brings great sorrow. To us or to someone else, we need to be God's instrument of comfort, or we need to receive comfort ourselves. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Going to make reconciliation requires us to be meek. It goes on to say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It is a righteous thing to do, to go and make that reconciliation. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Sometimes when we go to make reconciliation, we find that all that person wanted was a little mercy. And we show mercy to them, and God uses it. And then we find mercy for ourselves. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God Listen, anger corrupts the heart. If you want a pure heart, you have to deal with that breach in the relationship. And then it says this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. God wants us to be peacemakers, and reconciliation is the path toward that. So what God is telling us in this text is, when it comes to our brothers, If I'm aware that I have offended somebody else and they are angry because of something that I've done or even something that they've perceived that I've done, I need to go to them and talk to them and be reconciled. And listen, I do not bat near a thousand on this one. This is such a challenge, isn't it? We talk ourselves out of it. We look at it and we say, oh man, what if it it blows up? What if it gets worse? What if I get madder at the person and trying to make reconciliation? Maybe I ought to just leave it alone. That's my default position. Ah, let's leave it alone. You know how many times that strategy has worked? Goose egg. Zero times. There has to be that effort to make reconciliation. And this is what Jesus is telling His disciples, and ultimately this is what Jesus is telling us. Last part of this passage that I think we need to look at is accusers must be dealt with swiftly or things get out of hand. Look at this in verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and put you in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now here, the example that Jesus gives is we have wronged somebody, and they are taking us to court to resolve things. 
Isn't it easy to get into a competitive type of stance where if somebody takes us to court, we say, oh yeah, I'll take you to court. I've got lawyers too, right? And it turns into a big brouhaha, big fight, and we don't even make an effort to talk things out and to settle outside of a legal proceeding. There was a number of years ago, a pastor I knew whose widower mom remarried. And they lived together several years, and the mother preceded the stepfather in death. And the pastor decided that the stepfather wasn't entitled to a small amount of money. And he went to court. Now, before he went to court, he came to me and we talked about it. I said, man, it's not worth it. The testimony that goes before the courtroom that you have as a pastor will suffer. So you need to avoid that. Don't do it. He did it. It was the principle, right? That's what we always say when we're being petty. So he went to the court, and guess what? The judge castigated him for picking on his 90-year-old stepfather. The testimony of this pastor drug through the dirt. And then, to add insult to injury, he had to pay the legal fees of his stepfather, which far exceeded any money he would have gotten in the settlement. Sometimes we think that it's good strategy to cut off our nose despite our face. And what the Word of God tells us is something quite different. Here, the idea is go and settle it. Don't escalate. Don't bring this into a place to where an outside party has to make a decision because look at what can happen. Come to terms quickly, verse 25, with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and to the guard to the prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The idea is this. You can suffer many more consequences if you stubbornly hold off reconciliation. What you need to remember is this. Reconciliation is always preferred. Pursue it, even if it costs you. That's the idea. Now, that is counterintuitive to everything that we think about or talk about in our world, isn't it? Stand up for your rights. Go against that person. They deserve it. Even if you've wronged somebody, it's not that big a deal. They'll get over it. God tells us something quite different. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon writes, Do not hastily bring into court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor himself, and do not reveal another secret, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you, 
your ill repute will have no end. That's the warning that we have. De-escalate, never escalate. You know, the last part of this passage that I think of reminds me of a passage. And if you would, leave Matthew for a moment and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This passage of Scripture calls the church at Corinth to task for disagreements that were going on in the church body that escalated to legal matters where they were bringing their disagreements before unbelievers and the horrible testimony that that brought as a result. And look at what the Apostle Paul says starting in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we who are to judge the that we are to judge the angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So If you have such a case, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes against brother and before unbelievers. Now, this is the part I really want us to key in on. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? You know what he's saying? Put it in the vernacular, take it on the chin for the team. And the team I'm talking about is the testimony of Jesus Christ. The team I'm talking about is the church body. When we choose to go ahead and be defrauded and put it over into God's hands and release that to God and say to God, God, you sort this out. I'm not going to pursue this and escalate it. I'm going to leave it with you in this. I'm going to forgive this other person. And if I've wronged them, I'm going to ask forgiveness and seek to make it right. I will do what it takes to be a peacemaker and not allow anger to drive my decisions. That's what God calls us to. That's living out the Beatitudes. That's doing what a disciple of Jesus Christ should do. As I prepared this passage of Scripture, God brought to mind many failures that I've had over the years in living this out. It's tough. I in no way mean to make this sound like this is an easy thing to do. But understand that if you hold on to your anger, it gives Satan the foothold in your life that can lead you down a path that leads to division and harm and great hurt. So as a disciple of Jesus Christ, think about this passage 
before you pursue a greater split, pursue reconciliation. This is how God would have us live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text, and Lord, it's convicting. This is an area where we all struggle, where it's so easy to fall into a pattern of bitterness and hatred and speaking out against others, and yes, ultimately it can lead to physical violence or murder. God, teach us to live according to the Beatitudes with the humility, meekness, gentleness, being the peacemakers. Lord, that is my prayer for me, and it is a a prayer that I also offer up on behalf of this church body. May we live these things out, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.